The following podcast is a live recording of a radio show first broadcast by Fresh FM with assistance from New Zealand On Air. Fresh FM is a community access media station based in Te Tauihu, the top of the South Island, New Zealand. If you or your group would like to know more about how you can have a program on our station, please contact us. Visit our website freshfm.net for our contact details. Welcome to For the Love of Wine on Fresh FM. I'm your host, Kirsten Rotskard. Today I'm joined by Matthew Rutherford from Spencer Hill Estates here in the Nelson Tasman regions. Welcome, Matt. Good to have you on the show. A pleasure to be with you. Great. So let's just get one thing straight, Matt. With a surname like Rutherford, are you related to Sir Ernest Rutherford, <laughs> the famous scientist from this region? We'd like to think so, but uh, if we are, it's a long way back. Okay. All right. <laughs> Cool. With that sorted, let, let's get on to your story. Now, Matt, I actually met you last year at your winery in Apamutri. And back then you told me that after saying, I'll never own a winery for 30 years, you had actually purchased Spencer Hill Estate. Tell me the story of how you came to own this winery. <laughs> well, yeah, I had said that for many, many years. That yeah. I own, a wine, uh, own a winery. I'll just uh, work for somebody that can afford to, to fund one. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was owned by Philip and Cheryl Jones, who were the founders, and I was, you know, lucky enough to be with them from day one, which is now 32 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, their, their lifestyle changed. They uh, were originally from the United States. They wanted to be in New Zealand and raise their, their family here because they felt it was a much nicer place to be. Uh, the family grew up and um, left home. Phil and Cheryl started spending a lot more time back in the United States. Uh, they actually had me help them set up a winery over there in uh, Washington State. Uh, and so they became uh, less frequent visitors back here, and, and, and it, it just sort of became obvious that they were quite detached, mm-hmm. and if it was going to continue successfully, that I probably needed to to take it on. And, but yeah, just there was a very of the moment kind of thing and and uh here and here i am <laughs> yeah so wow that's a big step so how do you feel now being the owner and not the employee it, uh, to be honest kirsten it doesn't feel a, a lot different because i had to almost run it as if i was the owner anyway because my livelihood depended on it then as it does now and mm-hmm. I, I was treating it um you know that way for phil and cheryl because they were basically absentee owners um, you know, I, I always did my best by them, and I'm pretty much, I, you know, I walked in into the winery the day after. Uh, my wife and I had said yes, and it didn't really feel any different. Mm. There are a few more sleepless nights. But, yeah, I was thinking that there might be a little bit more anxiety in your life now, being the owner. Yeah, a little, yes and no. Um, there, there, you know, there are times in any business where you know you, you do have sleepless nights, but. Conversely, when things are going really, really well, you know that you're the one that uh, is going to reap the benefits. So it's, you know, swings and roundabouts. Yeah. But, but again, I, I was so closely attached to it and, and, you know, pretty much solely running it for, for Philip and Cheryl anyway. It, it, it didn't really feel that much different. No. Are they still involved somehow? Uh, they they still own part of the property. Um, my wife and I purchased the winery business and all of the stock equipment, plant machinery, everything like that. So yeah. and 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 I keep in close contact with them because you know we've been 
you know, associated for well over 30 years, and I still chat to them about their winery over there, and they'd like to know what's going on here. So uh, yeah, we, we, yeah. We, we definitely keep in touch, for yeah. sure. And actually, having been founded uh, about 32 years ago now, it makes it the third oldest winery in this uh, region. I believe in its current state, um, I'm pretty sure it is. Would, yeah, yeah. I think it's only now Nudorf and Seifreds that have been... Around longer. Um, around longer. Yeah. Um, a few close behind us, but yeah. yeah. Let's talk about the wines that you make. As I understand, Spencer Hill mainly focuses on Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, Pinot Gris, and Pinot Noir, and that you have several labels. Talk me through the whole shebang here. Yeah, well, we, that's that's pretty accurate. We we Chardonnay is our passion and our, our main focus. That's what you know made us famous really right, right back in the 90s. With Tasman Bay Chardonnay, it was voted the worldwide champion white wine in London at the world's biggest wine show at the time. Um, trophies at every show in New Zealand. Our Spencer Hill Chardonnay beat hands down some of the the top Chardonnays produced in Australia and a few other places. So it's always been our passion. Mm-hmm. If I had to choose the wine I was going to take to a desert island, it would be a bottle of Chardonnay. Mm. Um, so that's and we're we're and, and it's it, it, it's a wine that. From a winemaking point of view, you, you can express. Um, you can do that with other varieties, but there's a perception in the market that Sauvignon Blanc has to be kind of like this, and Pinot Gris should be sort of like that. But Chardonnay, there's a lot more scope. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more of a blank canvas, I guess. Um, yeah, and it's become very popular again. It has. It's been a, a very cyclical wine, and the styles that people are looking for vary as well. Um, there was a period in the very late 90s, early 2000s, where people were shying away from you know, oaked, um, and there was a perception that unoaked Chardonnays were going to become very popular. Um, they were for a while, but people drifted back. We have always pretty much stuck to a, a, a style that we're known for, and that style went out of fashion for a little while in the late 90s, early 2000s, but we just kept making it, knowing it was going to come back again, and mm. it has. And now... You just have to look at shelves of fairly decent wine retailers um, and quite a few in Nelson where there's a plethora of Californian Chardonnays now that are buttery, oaky, big, fat, ripe styles. And that just shows how much it's done full circle and come back again. There's a mm. demand for that style. Now, we don't quite go down that road. No, uh, you're more Burgundian, aren't you? Generally speaking, but that, that one of the reasons we do have different labels is that it does um, give us the opportunity to create different styles under different labels. Our Latitude 41, which is our most popular domestic label at the moment, it does tend to, to head in that slightly Californian style. And, and again, that was a style that made this winery you know, famous mm-hmm. and it was um, in the very early days. Whereas our Spencer Hill wines do head more down the you know, Burgundian road. Um, and it, it gives us the flexibility to play with styles, but let the consumer know when they get familiar with a brand they know what they're going to get. You, it's very difficult to be chopping and changing your style within one brand because then people get confused and they they, they want to know what they're going to get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, you also have a passion for refined styles of Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah, we... Melbourne uh, Sauvignon Blanc has made New Zealand famous in the wine world and that that's it is what it is some people really like it i can drink a glass or two and then that's it for that's me that's it yeah um, the aggressive grassy very forward style the mootry especially we our wines are more our sauvignon blocks more on the tropi- tropical sort of spectrum 
and that gives us the ability to to do to play with them a little more with a little bit of yeast lees aging a little bit of french oak maturation release them a little uh later when they're a little older than than most sauvignon blancs which you know people like to get them out there when they're very young and fresh and zingy and forward yeah but they can actually age really well they can and uh, some like a lot of older sauvignon blancs simply the way it's made and, and the nature of the grapes it won't it, it goes from the beautiful punchy zingy um fruity wine to canned peas or asparagus you know after 18 months two years now that, that's a generalization they don't all do that but they have a tendency to head in that direction whereas uh, our sauvignon blocks over here in nelson um, particularly up in the in the nutri clay in the hills with that different fruit profile and flavor do age differently and i i, I actually like a, a nelson or a Moutry, uh, sauvignon blanc with a little bit of age on it yeah and you also do uh, one that is uh, like a puy puy uh, fumé style. Um, how to get those French words out sometimes? Um, so like a, the the fumé one is sort of smoky. Yeah, well that does have quite a bit of um, yeast lees aging and aged on French oak. That's a toasted French oak, so it does have that smoky smoking character. Uh, that's what the the part of the name of fumé means. It's a few, you know French, for, and that's the, the smoked character. And they, they we we are actually currently drinking the 2015 vintage of that. It's just drinking beautifully. Nice. Uh, and most Sauvignon Blancs will just fall to bits way before that age. So yeah, it's again, we we don't like to just process wine through here, chuck it in a tank, bottle it, and get it out. There's so much you can do, and it's fun. It's fun to play with different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you actually grow your own grapes? Uh, we had we planted a vineyard, our vineyards up here 32 years ago. I planted some of the very first vines up here all the time ago. But as the business evolved, and actually well before I even bought it, the decision was made that we were going to remove our vineyards from our home block here, I was traveling a lot to the U.S. Um, to make wine for Philip and Cheryl over there. Um, we had a lot of a very old uh, staff that had been here from like the very early days with me as well. And as they slowly started to retire, and it just looked a bit a bit, a bit hard from a management point of view to keep the vineyards running while I was absent a lot. And our cost of production on the hills up here was getting expensive so we made the decision which some people thought was kind of weird to just <laughs> remove all the vineyards but we've got very good relationships with contract growers and we've been buying grapes from growers around the Nelson region for many many years anyway to supplement our own vineyards so we've got such good long-term relationships with good growers uh, we have nine different growers in the area um, that uh, just what well, I decided for the owner's sake, again, before we, I'd even considered buying it, was to take the vineyards out, focus on the winery, spend my time dedicated to that with the staff that we have here, and just purchase grapes. And honestly, some people thought it seemed a bit strange, but in other parts of the world, it's a very common practice. Yeah, then, I was just about to say, it's certainly not uncommon. So um, what is a little bit uncommon is the lack of barrels at Spencer Hill. Because despite being a top Chardonnay and Pinot Noir producer, there is not a single oak barrel in sight. And you're otherwise a very well-equipped winery. Why is that? Well, uh, oak barrels are ridiculously expensive. They're very, very labor-intensive to look after, whether they have wine in them or even when they're empty, you, you, know, you have to take care of them. They are a, can be a breeding ground for unwanted bacteria and yeast. And 
Essentially, they're there for the, well, the, the first reason is to impart the oak flavour into a, a wine. Mm-hmm. The second reason is you know, the way a wine might interact with small amounts of oxygen through the, the, the wood. But the main reason really isn't to impart, impart oak flavour. So what we do is we purchase oak that is the same quality as a wine barrel, but it may, say, have a, a knot in the wood where it couldn't be bent into a, the shape of a wine barrel. or you know, It's the same quality wood. We put that inside of a you know, very clean, hygienic, sterile stainless steel tank, and then we achieve our oaking that way. And the cost is hugely minuscule compared to the cost of using oak barrels and the, the labour that you have to put into it, the losses. The um, It used to be considered that it was just a cheap, nasty way out. But that was yeah, I was about to say, yeah, there, it's, it's, it's quite a different way of doing it. And, and it's, as you say, some people think it's bad. but No, it, in fact, it can have um, superior results if you do it with the intent of making quality wine. And, and in fact, our wine that was voted the worldwide champion white wine at International Wines and Spirits competition was a Tasman Bay Chardonnay that was made in a tank entirely with high-quality oak staves. And mm. that you did, no one can tell the difference. You did... But you have to have the intent there to create a quality wine and not um, the intent to just cheaply you know, produce a wine. It, 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 how you use it uh, defines the wine at the end of the day. So. Yeah, yeah. Now, another quite unique feature is the amount of kosher wine being made at Spencer Hill. What's that all about? Well, back in uh, 2004, um, it was just random conversations between Phil and, and myself, you know, the old owner, about I think it was in a one of the world's largest wine magazines. It was either Decanter or Wine Spectator. We we noted that a lot of the contributing editors all had Jewish uh, surnames, mm-hmm. and we kind of joked about it. And then we thought, well, proper Sabbath observant Jews who who love wine, and they know that a lot of them have a lot of money and purchase you know very high quality wines around the world, have never been able to experience. New Zealand wine, um, because there was no kosher wine in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. So, although it seemed like a really weird thing to do, uh, we we set down the road of seeing if we would be able to produce kosher wine, and, and it's very complicated because we're not um, religious or Jews. Uh, and I would just like to point out, there's nothing strange about the wine at all. That it's not blessed or prayed over. We don't have to point in a certain direction or anything. It's just basically. The wine has to be produced with a rabbi or a, or a Sabbath observant Jew watching us to make sure nothing goes in it that they're not allowed to eat. And as it happened, we didn't use most of those things anyway. A lot of traditional winemaking involves gelatin and and uh, dairy products as additives, and a, a lot of stuff goes into wine that people don't really realize. <clears throat> so we just um, figured out a way that we didn't need to use any of that. And... Uh, yeah, well, uh, we can produce kosher wine for the export market for you know, the Jewish world, and it, it's, it really is. There's a lot of top French wineries now who are doing kosher runs of their of their normal products because the demand is there. And, and at the end of the day, it doesn't have to be any different in taste or quality to um, your everyday wine. Yeah, so, so essentially, it's a vegan wine since you're not using any of these uh, refiners, right. etc. Yeah, yeah. Just by default, it becomes vegan, vegetarian. Yeah. And, and um, so the market is quite wide. Yeah. yeah. 
And it's labeled under Goose Bay Wines? Is Goose that... Bay, that's correct. Yeah. yeah. And, and people probably wouldn't see it around here very much because obviously the demand for kosher wine in New Zealand is very limited and, and, and we can barely ever make enough, so it doesn't ever really get sold. A couple of restaurants have had it around here for the uh, because of the vegan aspect of it. Right. But, uh, yeah, not really something that people would see around here. No. So it was easy to break into that market overseas, did you find that? Uh, once we'd, we'd, um, we got logistically within a winery to make kosher wine, it, it actually is very, very complicated. Once we'd figured out the practical side of it, you know, before we lifted a finger, we went to the world's largest kosher wine distribution company based in New York. Mm-hmm. And said, you know, if we can pull this off, you know, will you represent us? Will you sell the wine? And they said, well, we will, but um, it's got to be, you know, it's got to be good quality and you've got to figure out how you're going to do this. Yeah. And, and so we had to work with quite a few people to get it off the ground. But we knew if, if we succeeded in the production side of it, uh, that we had the, the sales force, the world's largest kosher wine distribution company to sell it for us. So, um, yeah, we, we, we set off in the knowledge that, um, if we could achieve it at this end, we were going to be fine. Yeah. So we've talked about different labels now. Um, so is it four or five labels that is under the umbrella of your winery? The, the, so the main, our main domestic brand here, and also um, for the export market, is in Latitude 41. Uh, our kosher brand is, is Goose Bay. We have our very small batch, um, only produced, literally only produced in the very good years, is Spencer Hill, mm-hmm. uh, and we have two other. Um, we have a, a Mariner Vineyards, which is a custom label for some export customers, and then there was Tasman Bay, which was like our most successful brand in the '90s and sort of early to mid 2000s. In all honesty, unfortunately, what happened to that? It became so successful, and you know, all the supermarket chains wanted it, and they put it on promotion and. We used to be on the TV ads and all the colour flyers, but at the end of the day, it, you know, when you're on special one week out of every four or five, people will just stock up on your wine on that week, mm-hmm. and then they won't buy any more for the other three or four weeks. And when you're on special in a supermarket, generally you don't make a penny on the wine. Right. So you get into this trap where it's just completely up. Well, we woke up one day and said, well, look, now we were producing close to 50,000 cases of wine a year. And we were making a profit, but we weren't making a profit that justified the work and effort that was mm-hmm. going into making that wine. And, and when we actually took a step back from the whole thing and looked where the wine was going, we realized such a huge volume of it was being sold at zero profit you know, in a one week out of five that it just didn't make any sense. So we decided to pull back from that side of it. We'll still be in some supermarkets here and there, but we don't go on special anymore. That, that, that essentially damaged that brand to the point where we've all but retired it, really. Um, mm. And it's just an exercise in business and, and sales and you know how you really need to actually protect your brand. And you can damage it very easily if you're not careful. And, yeah. and that, that kind of happened. Yeah. And uh, so your production today, how big is that? Uh, we're sitting around twenty three, twenty four thousand cases of of our own wine. We do a tiny little bit of contract winemaking, but I try to stay away from that. I like to just keep my staff focused on 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 our our wine and and take care of our equipment and not overwork the equipment and the people and just look after our own little patch, as it were. And yeah, yeah. yeah. How big is your staff? Uh, at the moment, we've got seven people now, and even though we don't have vineyards, it still takes you know, a certain number of people just to run a facility. You, you, aside from the actual 
winemaking and the, 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 the things that would automatically spring to mind, you need someone cleaning your buildings and mm. somebody keeping the driveway tidy. <laughs> the little miscellaneous jobs that could just take up a whole person, for instance. So, because we still we have a facility here that we're, we're, we're actually very large. We have about one and a half million litres of capacity and, and we can put through, you know, our biggest vintage here has been a thousand tonnes. So wow. um, we don't use all of that right now uh, and it's underutilised, but it's there if we ever need it. And I, I, when you have a facility and equipment like that, you've got to look after it, you know, whether you're really maximising it or not. So, yeah, we could, like at the drop of a hat next year, put through a thousand tonnes quite easily through this place. So. Hmm. Who's your winemaker? Well, there's, um, I, I, so I started as the, the dog's body and then the viticulturalist and vid- you know, vineyard manager and the assistant winemaker. And then I was the head winemaker uh, and then general manager. Once I started running the, the winery more hands-on when Phil and Cheryl were spending, spending more time in the United States, we hired Jules Randall, who was in Australia at the time, making wine over there. He came over here in 2011, and so he's our head hands-on winemaker, and then I more or less just consult back, and we still do all our blending trials together, and you know we, we spend a lot of time in our lab just tasting and looking at fruit through harvest and making a lot of joint decisions, and, and we're very lucky that we have very similar palates, tastes, and, um, and we can have, agree really early on where a wine needs to go. Mm. So it makes it easy. Well, if you had two people involved and they had different tastes or different visions for a wine, it could get quite complicated. We agree on most things, and that makes life easy. But it's always good to have two people having their input because then you don't necessarily lose sight of things or start heading left field down a track that you don't realize you're going down and end up making wine that you can't sell. And believe me, that's happened around here before. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, he's... He's worked out very well. Does cool. a very good job. Yeah, and you pretty much do everything from from making the wine, of course, to bottling and printing your own labels. It's just all done on site, isn't That's it? That's right. We've learned very early on that once you start relying on too many other people, you know, one person lets you down, and it can throw every you know, everything out of kilter. So, we have a nice big warehouse here. So I keep like stocks of empty bottles a lot instead of relying on somebody else to have them in stock and I ring up and say I need 10,000 bottles next week and they say oh we don't have any I always make sure I've got 10,000 bottles in my warehouse we print all our, our own back labels with all the vintage and the specific details that change with each bottling run so I don't have to wait four weeks mm-hmm. for a commercial printer to get them to me we print them here. Um, when we had our own vineyards, we were fairly small in the vineyard size of things, but we had our own grape harvester because, you know, when weather's looking inclement and everybody's trying to get hand pickers to come and pick their grapes, well, just not everyone's going to get them. So we thought, right, we need the ability. We can go out and pick our own grapes at the drop of a hat. So it's really nice to be you know, a bottling line. Some people put their wine into tankers and ship it off to other wineries for bottling or wait for a mobile bottling line to come that might be booked months in advance if I can see today that next week the weather's going to rain the whole week and I get all my staff who are normally outside will just come inside and run the bottling line for a week and just bottle wine mm. and, and it's, it's, it's really nice to be self-sufficient yeah very self-contained and, and you really do things quite differently I'm, I'm, I'm quite intrigued by the way you operate your, your business and also unlike most other wineries uh, today in New Zealand you're not very happy about using screw caps uh, you, you use other closures so tell me about that 
Well, we, we, we are using screw caps on a lot of wines because it's been it's it's expected now in a lot of markets. Uh, unfortunately, when screw caps became um, very popular in the early 2000s, it was because there was a lot of issues with natural corks mm-hmm. causing um, tainting the wine. There's a chemical that occurs naturally in cork, and 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 five percent of all corks at the time had this chemical in there. And it, it created a funny off aroma in wine. It's called corked wine. Yeah. Um, so there was a big drive within New Zealand to eliminate that problem and go and use screw caps. Now, uh, I don't, without getting really too technical or scientific, a, a screw cap, when it's a pure absolute closure, um, is a reductive environment. Um, there's zero ear, and wine doesn't really like zero ear. Wine doesn't really like too much ear at all. But screw caps. Um, uh, for the the style of wine New Zealand was making, i.e. the pungent Sauvignon Blanc, wineries really had to add a lot of copper sulfate to their wine to reduce or stop the wine going funky under a screw cap. And that kind of had a negative effect on the wine. And also, physically, screw caps can be quite easily damaged. I mean, a lot of people don't realise when they're at the supermarket grabbing their bottle of wine, they need to look at the top of that screw cap because a lot of the time it can get nicked or dented and that breaks the seal completely mm. so the actual failure rate of of screw caps is actually at times can be as high as the old-fashioned natural cork really wow. right around the time that the screw caps became popular there was a product brought out which was a cork product that was ground up cork it was um washed with uh liquid co2 and then essentially glued back together with the same polymer that contact lenses are made out of called a diam cork mm-hmm. guaranteed to never taint your wine absolutely 100 percent guaranteed and we did a lot of trial work in the early 2000s for the french company that was making it we've never had a wine returned for a corked wine no random oxidation no corkage nothing they were about 18 months too late on the market because if they'd come out 18 months earlier you would not see the the amount of screw caps around that you see now but honestly Kristen, there's some people that don't own corkscrews anymore they just don't. Mm-hmm. So we were kind of had to go down a track of, of using uh, screw caps on our more commercial lines because that was just expected. And a lot of overseas distributors said, you know, and people expect New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc to have a screw cap on it. So it was on our Spencer Hill wines, generally speaking, we still use cork where we can. And some yeah, of and that other... is your most expensive range, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I trust the, the diam cork, the closure that I was uh, referring to, I trust it completely. So um, we'll keep using it wherever we can. Mm, 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 yeah. Now, um, I remember when I met you, you told me a funny story that when you began working for Spencer Hill all those years ago, you didn't actually drink wine because you don't <laughs> only ever taste a cheap plonk and it didn't appeal to you. But I, I get a feeling all this has changed. You like really good wine, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> well, I do. I, I mean, I, I was 19 years old and I'd only ever drank wine out of a cask. And I, yeah. I, I never envisaged myself. I originally got the job here uh, with Phil and Cheryl to start developing the vineyards for them because I could drive a tractor and you know create put up the trellising and you know it was more the farming practical side of it. Uh, but as we progressed, naturally, I you know became more and more drawn into it. And Phil and Cheryl have a real love of wine, and Phil used to bring a lot of really nice wine back from um, the states every time they travelled back there. And uh, but I, I always remember the very first glass of wine that. I, I liked and I thought I could you know I did well what's this mm. and it was from way back in the day it was a 1990 Chardonnay from 
the original um, Daniel Lebrun winery ah. in, in Renwick, which has now become Mahi Wines. But it was way back there, it was, a, and they and they used to make still table wine back then, and it was a Chardonnay from there, and it was like, wow, this is this is different. This is something else, yeah. Oh, and that was it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So is Chardonnay still your favourite um, wine? Yeah, drink? definitely. As I said earlier, I'd, if that was if I was going to the desert island, yeah, that's where uh, you'd take one yeah, yeah. bottle of Chardonnay. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> or maybe even a case. <laughs> pro- pro- probably so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, how much is your family involved in the business? Uh, your wife, your children, are they part of it? Yeah, well, my wife does a lot of our uh, administration work. Um, my oldest son is works here full time, and he's. Uh, involved in running the bottling line and, and um, maintenance around the place and, and my uh, oldest daughter who works part-time as a barista and when she's not doing that she works here she helps out labeling and, and um, doing some promotional stuff for us uh, my six and ten year old it's probably illegal to get them to yeah. <laughs> the but, yeah, but their day will come <laughs> yeah 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 so it's not all about wine at the Rutherford household is it uh, no, no, no. It's, you've got to have your other avenues, your other things. I mean, I'm pretty focused on, on wine because, you know, a, a, a dairy farmer normally doesn't go home at night and have a big glass of milk or, you know, uh, but, but a winemaker or a winery owner definitely goes home and has a glass of wine. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Now, where do you see your business in 10 years from now? Uh, where do I see it? I, don't, I never want to get it so big that I lose control of it. Mm-hmm. And I obviously don't want to ever see it shrink so much that it's not viable anymore. I, I want to keep it fun. I do want to try some more styles. We, different varietals in Nelson, you're kind of limited. I mean, we did the same thing that a lot of other early growers did. When we started planting grapes here, we had everything from Gewürztraminer, which is a very early ripening grape, through to Cabernet Sauvignon and Syrah, which are very late ripening grapes. Mm-hmm. And if you have the, the perfect um, climate for one of them, then you do not have the perfect climate for the other. Oh, we had everything in between. So what we did over the years is we just really narrowed down, narrowed down to what really does grow well. You, you won't really go anywhere else in the world and find a, a, a wine-growing region the size of Nelson that will do things like Pinot Gris and Gewürztraminer and then to the other end of the spectrum, Cabernet and Syrah. Generally speaking, they don't work well. Mm-hmm. So um, I'd like to play with a few different varietals. I mean, Gruner Veltlin has been chucked around in New Zealand as maybe mm-hmm. the next big thing. And, and, and Albarino? Uh, yeah. And uh, again, Albarino is an interesting one. It does actually need quite a bit of heat and then the cool nights for it to get to its, its best. And I, I'd look at all of these different varieties that are produced in New Zealand. Viognier was going to be one. Viognier was, and, and, and like 15 years ago, that was our next big thing. And we had a beautiful Viognier vineyard plant, planted on the hills out in Atawai, mm-hmm. uh, in a very coastal marine setting. And one year and four, it would be absolutely stunning. And the other three years, it just wasn't viable to crop it. Um, beautiful wine. And different distributors around the world um, would take it go to try and sell it and it just they couldn't sell Viognier they'd say whenever they placed in the end whenever they placed orders for our other wines they sold they would say oh and can you put on four cases of Viognier for me to drink at home (laughs) they love the wine yeah they just couldn't yeah it's hard to sell a lot of the time it's if it's on a wine list and and the average person just can't pronounce it like Gewürztraminer or you know Viognier they won't order it because they just don't want to look uneducated or don't want to look silly so 
uh, yeah, it's a, it's a funny thing. We, there are some things we do well here, but uh, as a country, but it's very hard to sell. Yeah. So I'd, I, I, ten years from now, I'd like to see. We're thinking of you know tasting room again, which will give Jules and I the ability to make some really small batch wines that wouldn't be worth making and going and trying to sell to the trade, but that we could hand sell in a tasting room. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and, and definitely a lot of family involvement, a core team, um, doing interesting things. We've won so many awards over the years that I'm over, I'm past it. If we win stuff, well, I'm happy about it, but I don't strive out to make trophy wines anymore. I like to make wines that we think that we and our families and our friends will enjoy drinking, and mm-hmm. that's really what wines are all about. Yeah, and our listeners, where can they actually buy your wines? Um, Fresh Choice Richmond are our, probably our biggest local stockists, and then a lot of on-premise around town has it. Again, because we kind of shied away from getting too involved in the supermarket thing there's, it's not everywhere but there's places like Super Liquors and Richmond Tahuna and And what uh, about around the country? Around the country uh, we, we have really good distribution in Auckland, again we, we kind of stay away from on-premise stuff a lot of the time because that's where you do end up losing money uh, not so much Nelson we were a very good customer base here in Nelson we always pay and good long long mm. like Trailways restaurant, we've been on their wine list, I think now continuously for about twenty six years or something. So we've got a really good loyal base around Nelson. Uh, yeah. Yeah. On that very positive note, our time is sadly up. Matthew Rutherford of Spencer Hill Estate. Thank you very much for sharing your story with me and the listeners here at Fresh Event in Nelson. It's been my pleasure, Kirsten. Thank you. The podcast you just listened to was a live recording of a radio show, first broadcast on Fresh FM, the Top of the South's community access media station, with support from New Zealand On Air. The funding of Access Media makes these podcasts possible. To find similar programs by other community access media stations, go online to accessmedia.nz.